With 12 starts and 11 NFL seasons, Sage Rosenfels has been classified as a career backup quarterback, but he's also responsible for some of the most electrifying comeback performances in Dolphins and NFL history. So yeah, I, I dropped back and just sort of looked at the line and bought some time and stepped up and just key one down the middle and Chambers had beat the safety on, I think it might have been Lawyer Malloy, you know, he got the ball, fell down, got up, got tackled run the ball, get to get a little quick out to, to West Welker, work our way down to the, you know, three, four yard line. Can't We can't get it in. Uh, I think I, I, I ran, I think we got penalty at some point. I tried to run it in for about the eight, got tackle on the two or three. I get up and I see the clocks at like 13 seconds, clocks running. We got no timeouts. There's really no time to even like look at the sidelines. And I just thought to myself, Fade to Chambers is the best play we got. I'm OG McDuffie, a two-time Miami Dolphins MVP. And I'm Seth Levitt, a former member of the team's media relations department. And in this episode of The Fish Tank, Sage reflects upon that 21-point fourth quarter comeback over the Bills in 2005, explains the pros and cons of life as a backup quarterback, and remembers a bright, young, offensive quality control coach in Houston who we all now know as Dolphins head coach Mike McDaniel. Hey, DJ Preach, tell them where they're at. You're now diving into the fish tank. Sitting down with Seth Living, OJ, Juice Man, ooh, and this is strictly for them true fans, yeah. golf fans, number one, one. Of course, y'all, this ain't no ordinary sports talk. Dive up in that fish tank. Welcome back to the Fish Tank right here on the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. Seth Levitt, DJ Preach is in the back on the board. And Juice, you got the 305, you're repping again. I know we just talked about that here in the green room, but uh, how are you feeling today? Yes, yeah, the 305, not the 35. You know, as one of our, as our next guest wants to think Rick Spielman thought it was your age. He said he was 35. He was trying to do the math. It's like, no, there's an O in there, Rick. Remember, you used to work down here. That's there you go. Yeah, carry the one, man. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm stoked, man. You know I'm always stoked, man, when I talk about my side of the football, man, and one of my favorites, man. So it's going to be a fun pod as usual, Big Seth, man. And, you know, I'm ready to get started, bro. Well, I know you're always going to be – you love the receivers. Right. But for some reason, a quarterback walks in here and you're just a little bit nicer. I wonder why that is. Well, you know how that works, man. You know how that is, man. You got to take care of your QBs, man. Wide receivers have to take care of the QBs no matter what it is, whether you got to get them coffee or donuts or food or whether you got to make sure you got the hot break off ready for them or whatever it is, protect your quarterbacks at all costs. Yeah, well, you said the hot break off and Sage Rosenfeld. So welcome, Sage Rosenfeld. I saw you nodding your head as soon as he said those words. How are you, man? Man, it is nice to have a receiver that is always on call for the quarterback's needs. It's very important. The good receivers who know it get it. Obviously, OJ learned that lesson somewhere. Not sure if that was at Penn State or early on with, with the Finns, but uh, uh, it's great to be on. I, I was on this pod, what, uh, two, three years ago, uh, I feel like, and and uh, the Dolphins are a hot football team right now. They got a hot quarterback, too, and they got a yeah. young, young head coach who I've got a little experience with, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to... we're going to talk about that for sure. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to get, getting some interesting chats today. Yeah, no doubt. Let me just say this. You said you don't know where Juice learned it. I can assure you that you don't lead the NFL in receptions, 
without figuring out how to get in your, your quarterback's good graces. So, <laughs> well, yeah, you, you got, you, there, there's multiple things. If you're like a top five receiver in the league, as far as, uh, uh, you know, balls thrown your way or catches, there's like multiple things you have to have. One, it helps to have a really good quarterback right. that helps. Right. Yeah. Two, then you have to like sort of, uh, mentally massage, uh, uh, you know, hey, when it's like sort of 50 50, or it's like, I know you could go over there, <laughs> but I, I, I can beat this guy. I know the technique by the way he's pre lined is outside and I'm breaking outside. So, it, but I, I promise you, I will still beat that. Right. Technique, you know what I mean? And so get, give him, give him a chance. And, uh, uh, Juice was a guy I wish I would have gotten to play with him. I, when I remember when I got to the Dolphins 2002 and you weren't there anymore. Uh, you had your toe. You probably had just retired not long before that. Jay Feather yeah. and I, oh one, yeah. So Jay Feather and I would, would talk about that, uh, you know, and and you go play basketball at Juice's house, um, and and I played with Kajana Carter uh, up in Washington just the year before. So you know, those two guys were were buddies, and and but yeah, Jay would talk about man just how good OJ was. Man, just a guy in the slot that could just beat everybody. He was quick. He was physical. He's he understood what the QBs were looking for and what we wanted, uh, you know, being a QB friendly, uh, legitimately a QB friendly wide receiver, not just like off the field and those types of things, but really like a guy who sort of understands how the game is work works and how, what the quarterback uh, is looking for. Uh, I seem seem like OJ, you know, sort of had that magic and, and Fiedler loved you as a, as a wide receiver. Man, and that's great to hear, Sage. It's, the crazy part about that, Sage, is that I was playing on one foot for Fiedler. I didn't. I wasn't even myself at that point, man. I was a shell of myself at that point. So the fact that he felt that way, man, that's pretty awesome, man. And, uh, you know, I love Jay. Jay found a way to get it to me despite my <laughs> my limitations, man. <laughs> but if I'd have had both feet for Jay, it would have been I, me, him, and, and Chan. We'd have feasted for a long time. Yeah, would have been good. So we're going to get into all of that, uh, but you just mentioned Jay Feeler, and, and before we get too deep into this thing, Sage, I, I have to address something. That first year, and really your first, first two years, 2002 to 2003, you and I, along with Jay, Harvey Green, and Neil Golkus, we made history in this league. I, it, this was something that had never been done before. I don't think it's ever been seen. It, it may never be seen again. And you know what I'm talking about. It's Hall of Fame worthy. We had the longest running and most dominant combination of Jewish quarterbacks and Jewish PR guys this league has ever seen. It was incredible. Ray Lucas and, and Brian <laughs> Greasy were, were the ones that the only non-Jews in our group. Odd men out. I mean, we, we as, as far as like controlling the narrative of the Miami Dolphins, I mean, we had that thing under wraps. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, starting quarterback. Oh, backup quarterback. Oh, you know, I mean. We whatever we wanted to campaign out there, we we had total control of uh, of the narrative of the Dolphins during those years. So yeah, great times, great memories. And my, you know, I played for the Dolphins for four years, oh two to oh five, and it's really an interesting time in the history of that football team. You know, the oh two and oh three were were you know nine and seven, ten and six years. We did make the playoffs. We had extremely high expectations. Of course, they they trade for Ricky. Uh, in 02, he ran for 1,800 and some yards. Just incredible. I th- I think that year, and I, and I was around far where he had a, an incredible year in, in 09 in Minnesota. And, you know, I saw, I played with Adrian Peterson. I played with, I don't know how many Hall of Famers. I think I probably played with eight Hall of Famers or something like that. 
that year, Ricky Williams, that was, I think that was the best football player I'd ever seen. And I played against him in college. He had 350 and five touchdowns against us <laughs> in three quarters. In three quarters. In three quarters. Uh, in three quarters when he was at Texas, you know, they, they took oh him out. They, they put in, uh, uh, I can't remember. Like they put the backup was like just as good. You know what I mean? Right. So, <laughs> but Ricky was simply incredible. He was 245, 50 pounds. I mean, he really was almost like a fullback, but yet I remember like we ran a draw versus the jets to sort of finish it off. And Ricky went for about 70. So he had breakaway speed, despite the fact that he was just so thick. And so strong and, and and so elusive. I mean, he could bounce balls outside and around the safeties and get the edge and then run over the guy, the corner who's come up to make the tackle. Um, that was an incredible season. The next year, we 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 trade for Junior Seau. I believe it was like a fifth round draft pick. So now our defense is even more loaded. We we're probably a top one or top two, three defense. Previous to that, you, know, you had Zach, you had JT, Big Tim Bowens. But the things, you know, you could tell things were starting to sort of, I shouldn't say fall apart, but there's starting to be a little more cracks in the armor there. You know, they had so many good players, but they're starting to get older. The offensive line got older. Say, it was starting to and fall apart. Was, I mean, let's not bullshit each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, really it what it was, was the, offensive, the offensive line uh, in that 1,800-yard season, it was a bunch of veteran sort of savvy guys who were just sort of, it was, they're sort of patching it together. You know, their bodies were starting to fall apart, but, you know, we sort of made it happen. The next year, we should have uh, probably acquired, uh, you know, two maybe, you know, more offensive linemen, drafted a couple of young guys and, and maybe, maybe been developing. And, and that was, you know, Ricky probably had just as many attempts, ran for like 1,300 yards. So we used him like crazy. And then, of course, the following year, the whole thing falls apart. Ricky doesn't show up uh, for <laughs> camp. He's off in India. You know, what, what are we going to do? This, this, that, and the other. Yeah, I think you know, Travis Minor was basically our, our starting tailback. Oh, we trade boy. For a kid, we trade for a kid from St. Louis. And, and you know, I think it was yep. Marty Booker, the wide receiver. You know, we also had issues with, like, uh, you know, Rhonda Gadsden, uh, uh, you know, was, had, was on the team. Chris Chambers in that one year had a, had a wrist injury. You know, sort of put him on IR. So we didn't have a ton of depth, especially on the offensive side of the football. So we, we had a couple of injuries. Yeah, it de definitely did start falling apart. Of course, North Turner left in 04. And that really was the beginning of the end. Because Norv left to Oakland in like, you know, February is like Valentine's Day. You know, most, most coaches get hired like <laughs> January 2nd, January right. 4th, you know, whatever it is. As soon as the season ended, fire a coach, hire another one. Of course, Oakland doesn't work on anyone's timetable. So nope. back uh, back when Al was, was running the show. And so they signed Norv really, really late. And we're sort of left without an offensive coordinator. And, uh, uh, you know, Chris Forrester was our, ended up being our offensive coordinator. <laughs> I mean, it was, yes, that's, uh, that's like when you have a flat tire, but then you also realize that there's like three raccoons living in your trunk. You know what I mean? Like it's, you, you, you get the tire around, it's, oh, my God, it's worse than here, you know, so. Uh, oh, so yeah, that, that ended up being this disaster of a season. We're like one and nine, go, and then you know he got fired, and uh, and they brought Nick Saban, like you know a whole different world. And shoot, Jason Garrett was my quarterbacks coach, and and uh, we I think we went nine and seven, but we started three and seven in our last six games, and and I, yeah. I decided and we're gonna get I, into I, all I, that, Sage. I think you just we went will. through our entire show run. Yeah, <laughs> no, we, we no, might as no, well no, throw no, our no, whole script out, Big no, Seth. You know what I mean? I'm, 
I'm not, I'm not in a hurry, but, uh, um, that, you know, that was an interesting year. And I decided after that year, I had enough, I wanted to live past 60. So I didn't want to like keep playing for Saban. So I, yeah. I got out of there and, and took some money and, and went over to, to Houston. And, and, and it was probably a pretty good decision based off of what happened after I left. <laughs> Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on Bank rate average, federally insured by NCUA. For sure. For well, sure. You know, Sage, man, your name's been coming up, I mean, a bunch lately, especially after, you know, recently after the Dolphins' miraculous fourth quarter comeback, you know, over the Ravens. You know, first, that 21-point that comeback, tied for the second largest comeback in our history. You know, actually tying your comeback, you know, from, from the Bills game. Yeah. Um, back, in, back in December of 04, when you led us to a twenty, you know, twenty-one point fourth quarter comeback, you know, to win twenty-four twenty-three, that was uh, unbelievable, man. But you, you finished with nearly three hundred yards passing, you know, two TDs in under twenty minutes, and then Chris Chambers almost had two hundred yards himself. You know, we talk about CC, unbelievable. What are your What are your memories of that game? What do I remember? I mean, you know, we're playing the Bills, and they got freaking JP Lossman over there, and we're getting our tails kicked in. It's it's twenty-three to three going going like late in the third. We're backed up on our own five. Uh, Gus drops back to pass, gets hit in the head, gets a concussion. Mm. Sage, you're in. I mean, yeah. I mean, everyone loves to go in the game when it's 23 to three in the fourth quarter. You know what I mean? Right. And Nick Saban just screaming at everybody uh, or whatever. <laughs> so, but you know, th- there is something about, and I think this is where it was one of my biggest strengths when I was playing. And really, when I was with the Dolphins, is I played in the preseason. You, know, you think about this now as, as you go forward here with backup quarterbacks in the preseason. That preseason is everything for the backup quarterbacks. It's experience. It is, you know, sometimes lots of throws. And, and for some reason, it seemed like for me, you know, they, they'd throw me in for the whole second half. They'd throw me in for the fourth quarter. But a lot of times we'd be losing. And for, a, for the backup quarterbacks, you actually, especially the guy who finishes the game, what you don't want actually is to be winning by 10 points because you're literally just going to hand the ball off. You're going to hand get off the ball. Yeah, that makes sense. Hand off the ball. You're going to get a coverage on third and eight. That's not really conducive to throwing the ball down the field. So you're going to check the <laughs> ball down and you're, you're going to have like three throws in the whole fourth quarter. If you're losing by 10, it's like two minute mode, right? So I had a lot of like in, in semi rookie year, but definitely like 02, 03, uh, 04. Lots of like, you know, where I'd play the fourth quarter and get 22 throws in and, uh, you know, get more simple coverages, but you're throwing the ball in first down, you're throwing the ball in second down, you're going two minute drill where you get, you know, lots of throws in. And so I had been sort of through my fair share of these in the preseason, excuse me, leading up to that. And so I go into the game and, you know, as they always say it, you can't get them all, you can't get 21 points back in one drive, right? You can't get them back in one throw either. And that's where a lot of people make the mistakes and, yeah, you have to have patience with it. And it just it literally is one completion at a time, one first down at a time. Any good two-minute drive starts with that first first down. And so, you know, we go out there. I I, I think the first drive, we, we may have gone sort of three and out, or maybe that's when Gus, you know, had gotten hurt and I came back in. Second drive, we right at the end of the, the third quarter, we moved all the way to the ball down. They, they flip it over, I think, 
uh, for the fourth quarter. Uh, we do a handoff to Ricky at about the five-yard line. He scores. And then the fourth quarter was just wild. You know, the fourth quarter really was something else. We score again. And the thing is, we, ha- we had a chance to sort of take the lead with about three minutes left. And uh, we're only down six. And they call double slants. And I throw a, the outside slant chambers or Marty Book, whoever it was, was wide open. And I'm throwing this outside slant. And their defensive end jumps up and just catches it. Right. I mean, as I say, I threw a very catchable ball. Everybody, that was always, that's probably the problem. Um, but uh, uh, threw an outside slant and gets intercepted. And so you know, there's about two and a half minutes left. I'm thinking that's the game. Right. I mean, they got the ball two and a half minutes left. But we had all of our timeouts. And our defense, again, was was so good. And they ran the ball three times or whatever. We got the ball back, decent field position, you know, 20, 25-yard line, whatever it was. And I believe first play, somebody dropped a pass, like right off the bat. Maybe it was Chambers or, or, or Ronnie Brown or somebody. I think second play, basically the same thing. And then on third third down, we just we, let, let's just go for it. You know, you, you, you assume you're going to get some sort of like cover two deep safeties third third down. And we ran a on for Chambers. I was on the left hand side. We ran sort of a a corner route to the post. Uh, you know, the sort of the corner post type of deal versus cover two. And it was really set up for uh, that exact coverage, that Tampa two coverage, where you just know Chris is going to end up outrunning that Mike linebacker running down the middle of the field, but. We had watched that, uh, those, you know, these types of plays because our coordinator, Scott Linehan, had come from Minnesota. Well, he had Dante Culpepper and Randy Moss up there. So, you know, we had watched some of these plays where I could tell Dante would just hold on to the football. He was going back there in sort of Hail Mary mode of like, all right, there was no like footwork going on there. It was just sort of like, because <laughs> there's no timing on these, you know, Randy Moss plays, there's no timing. Some of these deep posts, man, if you just hold on to it long enough and just throw it as far as you can, Randy just come down with it. And so, my thought process when I got the ball, when I, you know, before the snap was like, I'm just going to buy time. I'm literally going to get the snap. And I, and, you know, pre-snap, I saw it was cover two. They bought, they snapped the ball. They confirmed that they were in cover two. So I knew I'd have a chance. At the very worst, you have a receiver on a safety, right? And a lot of times, hey, the safety's a deep. You can't, but safeties play safeties because they can't catch. You know what I mean? Like no one, hey, I, I want to be an NFL safety. No, everyone wants to be a receiver, a running back, quarterback. <laughs> Some guys, oddly, like like Pat Sertan's kid, want to be a corner because his dad probably was. But I bet if you ask Pat, bet, I bet Pat Sr. wanted to be a wide receiver. You know, so, <laughs> quarterback. So you, he was you a quarterback up, in high school. Or, or quarterback. So you, you end up on the other side of the football, for, and, and especially safety. Because safeties are like – corners with even probably worse hands because they're really almost a linebacker in, in, in some defenses, <laughs> you know. So giving your guy a chance on a safety, who safeties just don't always play the ball very well. And uh, so, yeah, I, I dropped back and just sort of looked at the line and bought some time and stepped up and just heaved one down the middle. And Chambers had beat, his, beat the safety on, I think, might have been Lawyer Malloy uh, on, that, on that corner post. And, you know, he, he got the ball. Fell down, got up, got tackled, sprint the ball, get get a little quick out to, to Wes Welker, work our way down to the, you know, three, four yard line. Can't We can't get it in. Uh, I think I, I, I ran. I think we got penalty at some point. I tried to run it in for about the eight, got tackled on the two or three. I get up and I see the clocks at like 13 seconds. Clocks running. We got no timeouts. There's really no time to even like look at the sidelines. And I just thought to myself, Fade to Chambers is the best play we got. I mean, at this point, I'm just going to throw a fade to Chambers. And 
interesting enough, I can't remember who it was. That Nate Clements was their corner, and he was an All-Pro okay. corner on the other side. And he, Man, had he gave us followed, fits. Yeah, yeah, he was a good player for a long time. Came out that 2000 draft year with me, uh, and he had sort of followed Chris throughout the game. But on that play, because it was like this sort of mad scramble, they sort of ended up on the other sides, and so he was uh, against another shorter corner on the other side, and. You know, I didn't even throw a great ball. Chris sort of jumped over him and sort of mossed him uh, with it and <laughs> snagged that thing. You know, Chris Chambers was the tallest 5'10 wide receiver yeah. in the national he football was, man. <laughs> Long arms, crazy hops. His, yeah. He, he, yeah. Went, he went from pectoral muscles to legs. You know, I he just did. had these really, really long legs and long arms. A very unusual, you know, body type. And... um Everyone always thought Chris was, I mean, I think he really was like 5'11", or he may have been six foot or something. I don't know how tall he was, but he people thought he was like 6'3", or 6'4". He wasn't. He just had these crazy long legs and long arms. Um, and he goes up there and snags that thing, and I don't know, three, four seconds left or something. And you know, really one of, probably one of the best, my best memories as an NFL football player, really probably one of the sweetest yeah. memories that I have you know I, I I had 12 career starts I was I was uh, six and six as a starter there's some you know I got a Monday night football win I got a third first ever uh Texans Monday night football win first ever Texans Thursday night football win I mean I have some 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 big wins um but nothing where nothing where I came back and won like that uh, now we saw what two well, it just hasn't happened often Sage <laughs> for anybody yeah, not just you right yeah right so but I do I do credit sort of those preseason snaps where you just sort of go out there and you got nothing to lose and and you get a ton of balls and you get used to that sort of that two-minute deal where they're not up you know they're not threatening the, the receivers as much you get a little space they're going to give you some completions so you've got to take those completions and we had such good players that if I just got the ball to Ricky or Ronnie Brown or, or Chris or Wes Welker at the time a lot of times they would make guys miss after that and to t- take that five yard completion and turn into about 10 or 15 yard gain. And so it was just getting completions. And then, you know, that, that, uh, that performance served me well a couple years later when uh, I was with the Texans and we're losing, I, I get thrown in the game at, I don't know, halftime or mid third quarter and Matt Schaub had gotten hurt. We're down. I think it was like 33 to five. Um, I, maybe we got a field goal and a safety. I don't know. I, 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 or, or maybe it was like 35 to three. I don't know what the exact score was. And it was that same deal. Two minute, like middle of the third quarter. We're just going to go two minute. And I think I threw, you know, 30 passes the rest of the game. And I'm throwing four touchdown passes in the fourth quarter in that game. We, 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 kept, we uh, take the lead. Almost the exact same play. I throw a ball to Andre Davis, who was Michael Vick's receiver at Virginia Tech. Super fast guy. He runs sort of a, a corner post down the middle, and I just same sort of thing, just sort of bought time, and I'm going to give Andre a chance, and the safety didn't play it well. Andre comes down with it. We take the lead, 51 seconds left, but we couldn't hold it, and they end up moving the ball back down. Uh, uh, the great Rob Baronis, uh, you know, passed away, I'm not sure, probably eight, eight or ten years ago. Uh, he kicked his eighth field goal to beat us uh, at the end of that football game. So (laughs) I did indeed eight field goals, eight field goals. I mean, (laughs) so uh, I did indeed uh, throw four touchdown passes in a loss in in the fourth quarter. I mean, that, that's a really, you know, we had the lead and to lose it like that, but uh, definitely that, 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 that one with the dolphins um, versus the bills. I came out of that game. My high school coach 
was at that game. Like he had, I don't, oh, I don't wow. think it's the only game he ever saw me play. So just this, just this feeling of like, I did something special, you know, you, you know, did. we, but in particular, I, I did do something special in that game. And so, so just a phenomenal memory. And also for a young guy, that was in year five, but still pretty young guy as far as playing time. It's like, okay, I can play in this league. I really can not just preseason games or not just some scrub time at the end, but you know, I can be a guy that that my franchise relies on. Uh, I mean, whoever my career was going to be, that I could play with the big boys. I felt like at that point, and um, yeah. Well, the reality stage, you said you talk about scrub time at the end. It kind of was scrub time. You just turned it into a comeback, right? I mean, <laughs> right. You know, you're, typically right. <laughs> when you're down 21 points in the fourth quarter, and your and your quarterbacks, you know, and your quarterbacks getting carted off. You're kind of thrown in there to get us out of there. Don't get anybody hurt. Let's just, you know, pack up, pack up the. You know, hey, Tony, get the guys and put the, the, you know, all the, uh, the lockers or what the hell am I trying to say? The trunks. There it is. That's the word. Put the trunks <laughs> on the plane. Let's get out of here. Next thing you know, you're throwing touchdowns. But I'm glad you brought up that other game because you know it really is a short list of guys that have thrown four touchdown passes in the fourth quarter, and Tua now is in that in that group. But that list. So juice. It's Kenny Stabler. Joe Montana, if you've ever heard of him, right? Vinny Testaverde and Sage Rosenfels and now yes. Tua Vailoa. So that <laughs> that was cool as hell. But they tweeted, I don't know who, CBS Sports or somebody tweeted this out. And then Sage followed up the tweet with the real zinger. And he said, yeah, that's really cool. But there's one coach that was involved in two of those games. And that's Mike McDaniel. So I want to get to that because you did leave here, as you said, in, in after the uh, 05 season, and you go mm-hmm. to the Texans, and there were a lot of great coaches on that staff, as we see now. But your Man. entire tenure there aligned with this young offensive assistant who's now the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. That's right. So I get to Houston. Uh, you know, I'm a free agent, and I had some playing time. And I, I will say, I, I actually got along well with Nick Saban. Really well. I, I had been the third string quarterback pretty much the whole time before that. I was a third string quarterback going into that season. It was Gus and AJ Feely starting, uh, you know, battling for the starting job, and I was just like the third guy. And I remember Jason Garrett saying to me, "You know, it's not how many reps you get in training camp; just make the most of each one. At the end, we're going to have this Gus tape, we're going to have an AJ tape, we're going to have a Sage tape, and you're not going to have as many plays, but make every one count. And we're going to, you know, so I played so well in that preseason." And practice that the Sage tape was pretty good, and and so they moved me to number two. And so I, I sort of give Nick a lot of credit uh, uh, for not doing the political thing because AJ was a second round trade from right. the year before, yeah, so they'd right. given up some. He when was, he was here, it was a disaster. <laughs> We're not you know, getting- Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. On the, on the, on the podcast, already big. Well, a, a couple of things, a couple of things. One, one, we really didn't have an offensive coordinator. So it was like the disaster season. I was, I mean, everyone was terrible that, that one in nine year or Fair. That, whatever. I think we, I think we ended up three and 13 or four and four and 12. I think. Four and 12. Um, four but, and he 12. Could, but he couldn't throw, he couldn't throw a football that had any, any sort of condensation on it. Right. So he's from Eastern Oregon, which is like the high desert 
anyway, but it's, it's, you know, he's used to like, he like he liked to run a drive football. And so you go to Philly, you know, playing these cold games up in the North and that's where he had played really well in, in 2002, where he was like four and one as a starter. It was like, you know, December, November, December games. And, comes down to Miami and you get these swamp footballs. I mean, the, you know, the center would snap it to you like in a walkthrough and you, we, we'd like show each other like this ball that was just completely covered in sweat. And he, he did not, he struggled throwing a, a wet football and I'd sort of gotten used to it at that time, you know, and, and uh, anyway, so, but I, you know, played well and they made me the number two guy and end up trading AJ sometime in that season. And, and so I learned a lot from Nick. And one thing that he was, at least for us, you see this guy screaming at players, screaming at refs, but his general conversation, like in pregame or uh, during the week, was this sort of positive attitude. He was one of the first coaches I was around the NFL who was like, I want positivity on the sidelines for 60 minutes. We always have a chance to win a game. You don't believe uh, you can win football games sometimes, but you're really never out of a football game. So I, I, I want to hear no negativity ever on the sidelines, always positive, always like, how can we get better? How can we find a way to win? How can we find a way to score on our next drive or get a stop? And he sort of preached that, I felt like, on our football team. I think that paid really big dividends. We sort of stayed positive to the bitter end, and that led to you know that great comeback. But despite that positivity, at the end of the season, I was a free agent. Uh, Miami was not going to offer me a, a ton of money. That's where they went out and, and mistakenly went after Culpepper instead of Breeze. And I remember uh, uh, I was offered a pretty good contract uh, by the Houston Texans. I, I, you know, I'd made all minimums at that time. You know, two hundred grand my rookie year, three hundred grand, a couple six hundreds in there, but never really made anything that began with an M. And Houston was offering me a number that began with an M, and that was exciting for me, you know. Um, yeah, I'd imagine that the M offer is pretty good. Huge, M's yeah, the, huge. The, yeah, yeah. So you know, it wasn't like big a, ass M's. It, it wasn't forty five M's or anything like these guys are making now, but it, it was it was more than one M, and that was even better, you know. Right. So so I end up, you know, I remember actually calling Jason Garrett and be like, hey, you know, because I really did want to, I, I wanted to stay in Miami. I loved it down there. Had gotten comfortable with the organization, of course, been there for four years, knew a lot of people, um, and Houston was terrible. They were 2-14 and 14 and, like, really one of the worst franchises in football. I actually called Brian Garisi. I'm like, what do you think of Kubiak? And he was like, if you can play for, for Gary, he will do well by your career. Every quarterback is successful that plays for him. And so I started doing some research and realizing, man, whether it was Greasy uh, who was at one point had 15 touchdowns and one interception, you know, got, got paid, uh, you know, guys like Jake Plummer, um, don't, but just going back, just quarterback after quarterback seemed to be pretty successful in that Gary Kubiak, Mike Shanahan offense. But yeah, I called Jason Garrett and I was like, Hey, you know, this is what they're offering me. You know, I'd, are you guys going to be able to match it? And Jason being the most politically correct coach I've ever been around looks at me and he goes, you know, when you, you're throwing that square out and you throw that square out and you like it. You just got to stick your foot in the ground and you just got to let it go. It's got to fire it out there. That's what I recommend you doing. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, that means that like, you're not going to pay me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he couldn't, he couldn't say, cause, cause they, they wanted me back, but it was like at a minimum, it was like another $600,000. Right, right. You know, they were up against the cap. You know, we spent, 
so much money on our defense and they had some other young guys they wanted to re-sign and you know blah 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 and so um i was like okay they're they're not gonna they're not gonna up their ante here you know because i really sort of didn't want to sign houston you know so anyway i get to houston gary kubiak's the head coach really the offensive coordinator troy calhoun was the quasi coordinator he's been the head coach from that he was there for one year and he had come from denver so so this this denver to houston thing occurred um and troy calhoun has been the head coach at air force ever since he's an old air force quarterback he was you know very sort of military type of guy very straight shooter a little uncreative, but like did exactly what he was told. Sort of the perfect offensive coordinator when the head coach is the offensive coordinator. Do what you're told, right? right? Stay in line, do the thing. But we had this young wide receiver, young wide receivers coach, I should say, named Kyle Shanahan. And, you know, of course, I'm like, oh, you know, this this skinny Kyle Shanahan guy, of course, gets the job because of his dad, right? Right. You know, Gary's going to hook, you know, we all know the NFL is full of this. So, you know, Gary's going to hook up this guy, Kyle. He's all right. You know, I'm, Remember, I remember seeing him at the sidelines of Texas, seeing Shanahan over there, uh, you know, as a wide receiver when I was at Iowa State. He was at, at UT. And so, you know, he's a wide receivers coach. Offensive quality control, Mike McDaniel. Uh, defensive quality control, Robert Sala. All right. A couple of years later, offensive quality control, M- Matt LaFleur. I mean, r- really incredible on Insane. that staff, you know, for – Wow. Four head coaches uh, currently that were on that staff, and and the next year Kyle moved from from wide receivers coach to quarterbacks coach, and then quarterbacks coach to coordinator. My in two thousand eight, and to where I believe him, you know, Gary started actually giving him the ability to call the plays, and I knew almost immediately that Kyle Shanahan was legit. I did. I could tell by the way he described routes to, to, to the wide receivers in our meetings of how to attack coverages, how to attack leverage, how to create separation concepts that um, maybe seemed a little bit more complex, but for the quarterback were really simple to see, really simple for the understand uh, for the receivers to understand. But he just had great uh, creative ability to like draw up shot plays. I mean, it, yeah, they're doing this, so we should be doing this. He'd kind of get upset because Gary wasn't the most creative guy. Gary was like sort of a this is tried and true uh, type of offensive coordinator, and Kyle wanted to be innovative. He wanted to try new things. He wanted to, hey, they're doing this, so we should we should you know do a high corner on this one, and we, then we bring this guy across, and and that was uh, a huge help for me, you know, being pretty successful when I was in Houston. Uh, and end up trying to go to Minnesota after three years to try to start before, you know, Brett Favre and, and that whole thing happened. And so, uh, yeah, so in that game, we're, we're losing and, and come, come flying back. And Mike McDaniel was on both those stabs. Obviously, he wasn't calling the plays and designing all those things, but he was a part of it. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with Mike, this, you know, this little, he'd come from Denver also. You know, I think he was the ball boy for the Broncos or something. But he'd gone to Yale, super smart, but, you know, him. And, you know, LaFleur and those guys, they were the guys that are sitting at the computers for most of the time, you know, drawing up the playbooks, drawing up the plays, taking all the stats, really just doing whatever Kyle or Gary wanted them to do. And, you know, the, the quality control, and sometimes they coach a little, but most of the time they're not really coaching. They're sort of there uh, uh, helping the coaches a little bit. Or maybe they, you know, maybe the wide receivers have a drill and the the starting guys are over here and the quality control gets the guys who are probably not going to make the team. You know what I mean? And they split it up or something. So they get some coaching, 
but what what Mike obviously and, and Mike was right there with Kyle as far as really liking the sort of the innovative, be aggressive uh, style of, of of coaching. And of course, they end up leaving Houston, going to Washington, and that's where they add this guy Sean McVay to the mix. And you know where those guys have all gone to, and the success that they've all had. Uh, is is really incredible. Of course, uh, Matt Lafleur's brother, Mike Lafleur, is Robert Sala's offensive coordinator up there with the New York Jets. So, a ton of success from that that 2006 move uh, for for uh, Gary Kubiak to hire Kyle Shanahan as as his wide receiver coach. Probably a little bit of out of a favor, but end up being just an, an amazing sort of tree that I sort of feel like started there. I know that they're from the Mike Shanahan tree in general, but Man, Kyle and, and Mike Shanahan was—he was also a little more traditional. He had that outside zone. He loved the bootlegs, but he wasn't overly creative compared to what his son was. You know, and I, sometimes I think it's like a generational thing too, right? Like older guys, sort of, like, hey, this is the way it works forever, and we're going to run this play. And I remember in 1988, you sound like me right now, and had all this, this. Yeah, yeah, right. It sounds like it sounds like all of us, uh, you know, in our 40s or whatever. So, but Kyle brought this sort of like creativity that I had that I had not been in in my NFL career this uh but creative with with formations and stacks and receivers and tight splits so they could block support but also we you know traditionally you know juice knows you know if you were running a square out you had to run that from the outside you're an outside receiver run a square out run that 10 to 12 yard square out you're an outside receiver you run a skinny post the old bang eight you're an outside receiver too yeah. Kyle was like, no, we can bring these guys in and they just sort of start angling out towards the numbers and you get to this spot where they can run a square out, they can run a skinny post, they can run a, a, an end, they can run just a straight go route. And so a couple of things happen with these minimized splits is one that you could call a running play and the receivers are already in position to block support. You could call a you could call a play action play or a bootleg, and now the receivers are in position to get to the other side of the field that they wouldn't be on the outside. But uh, on top of it, he really felt you could run those same sort of outside passing plays, passing concepts from these reduced splits. You know, you might not get twelve yards on right, you might get ten, but the angle for the corner. I realized that the, the corners, you know, you, you're outside. The corner can play outside technique. They can play head up. They can play inside. And a lot of times as a quarterback, you can't always see all that, right? right? But when you're in a reduced split, those corners, they can't play inside technique. You know, I mean, they play inside technique. We're just going to steal these out routes or really probably just run past you and you're going right. to actually return to the football. Right. So then you start getting all these corners who are sort of outside technique. And then as the as they were dropping, they sort of dropped with their – I guess their chest to the to the middle to the hashes, right? They're, they're, they they would sort of drop and turn instead of just straight backpedal. They're getting these weird angles coming at them from their wide receivers uh, who were sort of uh, spreading on their uh, on their initial stem routes, and they didn't know how to play them. They couldn't drive on the football, and so we just started being really really creative with both run and pass and bootlegs and play action. And you know, I was. A, fairly athletic quarterback. I wasn't, I can't say I was a, you know, I might've been six, four and two twenty, but you know, I had the sort of the pocket passer look, but I went to college. We ran a, a high school, tons of bootlegs. We ran a little option. And so I really, I was, I was a guy who felt most comfortable with like bootlegs. And of course they ran, we ran a ton of those. And I remember uh, specifically talking to Mike McDaniel uh, in the off season, or maybe it was like late in the year. And he's like, every time we called a bootleg last year, 
we got a minimum of 11 yards. That was, our, it was like 11.2 yards per call. If we completed the ball, it was 19 yards. We were just putting up numbers on bootlegs and play actions that nobody uh, was, was touching. You could ask wide receiver, hey, you call this play, you get completion, you get 19 yards. They're like, why don't we call more of those? Right, right, and right. <laughs> before that, whether it was Norv or when I was in the Schottenheimers, my, my rookie year in Washington, it was very, really even Saban, it was very, you know, some play actions a little bit and some bootlegs a little bit, but they weren't super detailed. And, uh, and Kyle, what, what his strength was, and I think where McDaniel learned this from him, they understood, Kyle understood defense so well. When he was with John Gruden in Tampa, Monty Kiffin was a defensive coordinator. And John used to make the, the quality control coaches sit in on meetings of the other side of the football. So Kyle basically learned the, the, the tiny, important details of all the coverages, cover four, cover three, man, two. What, but he learned like the, the wording from Monty Kiffin, one of the great defensive coordinators in NFL history. So when you know literally what those guys are looking at and what, I mean, he, Kyle would call the, the techniques out. Oh, this, this corner's in a 21-man tech, 21-man rule. I'm like, what's 21-man rule? Well, they want to they want to turn and see all 21 men on the field. Oh, that makes sense. So you start actually using like defensive terminology in offensive meetings. And so when you understand mm -hmm. what the defense is being teached or taught, I should say, you know then how to attack it. And I hadn't been around that type of detail before um and then that style of offense with the bootlegs and the play action i mean our we, they of course they love running the ball inside zone outside zone but then they had these play actions where we'd fake run it of course and these linebackers would be all up in in the line of scrimmage trying to stop the run and here's andre johnson one of the best receivers in football wide open i mean wide open and i just never had been around that where it's like wow we can get guys <laughs> wide open because the runs and the and the play actions and the boots look the exact same and you would find i mean i remember uh was it last year first game of the year the rams are, are playing the bears and they run an outside zone to the right bootleg to the left and he throws a matt stafford throws a you know 60 yard bomb to to the wide receiver well cooper cup was blocking the defensive end of the bears on that play right You'd find we at the time for in Houston it was David Anderson's little slot receiver, but we we get these guys in these reduced splits who were trying to cut off in the running game, but they would make the bootlegs look the exact same. So as they're trying to cut off, these defensive linemen are trying to mess with these guys, and uh, <laughs> they weren't really blocking them; they were just sort of getting in the way. But it looked like the runs; so these D right. linemen are chasing the ball down the line of scrimmage, and that's huge advantage for the offense. Anytime you can take your like third receiver. And have them block a premier defense event, you've now minimized their best player and maximized maybe your worst player that's on the field. Right. And those guys created time. Dropping back in the pocket is the hardest thing to do in football. If you ask any offensive lineman, any old line coach, what order would you like to call plays in this game? Like, what are the easiest to the worst? All right. Easiest, of course, running plays. Second easiest, probably bootlegs, because they just sort of fire off and make sure there's no penetration, right? They're not really responsible for blocking someone for four or five seconds. And, you know, then probably like wide receiver screens where they could just sort of take a step back and then go down there and try to hit somebody that they've been you know, told to hit. Uh, but drop back pass, shotgun, drop back pass, that's the hardest thing to do. 
that's where it's like, I got Jason Taylor here for four seconds. Good luck. Right. <laughs> Good luck, but when right? you do the bootlegs and the play actions, the Jason Taylors of the world have to play that run first. But by, by, I mean, what they're taught is this is your gap. You got to play the run first. You can't just rush the passer. So that sort of two seconds right there of slowing him down allows you to be in the pocket for four or five seconds. And that allowed then the receivers to get further down the field. And of course, you know, the linebackers, the safeties, they had to come up in their run game fits to stop the run, which allowed just so much space back there in the secondary that when you just drop that pass, what do the linebackers do? They drop back too, right? So it's really hard when they're dropping back to try to throw the ball over their heads and then in front of the, the safeties on like the 20-yard the, the dagger routes and things like that. But when you suck them all up to the line of scrimmage, now there's all this space back there and uh, it's way, way easier to throw the ball in, in those holes than when you're dropping back pass. So it was a huge change in football at that time to where they just sort of brought what Mike Shanahan was doing and I feel like just brought to a whole nother level. Because Mike Shanahan, he'd do some tight split stuff, but he wasn't nearly as creative as his son, Kyle, who was just all over. And of course, again, McDaniel on that staff. And and yeah, so he's been a part of you know two different games now where – He's seen quarterback so four touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and uh, I have not and watched. He finally that got game a dub, yet. and he got and he got a W. Mike's an interesting guy, as you guys have seen. And what I love about the NFL, different than college football, and I, you know, I'm an Iowa State guy. We got this guy Matt Campbell, who I think is one of the better coaches in college football. You know, he's been offered all sorts of jobs to go to bigger places and SEC, and he's turned them down. But college is so much about culture and young athletes and their maturity and getting guys to play together and scheme of course is important, but it's really about that culture and, and, you know, developing development of young athletes. The pro game is different. The pro game, you don't need to have some coach motivate me. I'm being motivated by millions of dollars, right? Or I'm out of the league. I mean, there's plenty of motivation already. So Juso will, will agree with this. What you want in your coach is not a guy who just motivates you. You want a guy who's going to teach you how to be a better player mm-hmm. and or put you in a position to be a better player. And that's where the NFL is different. It's all about offensive coordinators for, for an offensive side of the football. How can you put in, your guys in position to maximize their strengths and minimize their weaknesses? In college football, it's different. And so McDaniel doesn't have to be this like motivator who comes in and, you know, the old Jimmy Johnson or Parcells of threatening people and playing all these mind games. And, you know, I, I think that young athletes don't want that anymore. They don't right? buy into they don't want it. They don't, not only that is that we've actually learned. Or young professionals psychology. we've found out. <laughs> right, right. Young, yeah. Yeah. But, but we've learned through psychology, trying to get somebody to do something by threatening them is not the way to go. It just isn't. It doesn't, it, it really sort of puts you in a box. It doesn't work on my to, kids I, either, Sage. does not I used work to on play, my kids at all either, man. Whether, I, for, for years, uh, when I was young in college, when I was young in the pros, I would play really scared. I'd be out of practice really scared I was going to make a mistake. And that fear gave me anxiety. And I think it gives a lot of athletes anxiety when you have these coaches who coach like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you want your athletes to know what they're doing and in a sense, play free, play confident. And you have to be able to be, have a sort of a culture that allows for that sort of freedom of, of, you know, be the, be the best version of yourself. 
not what Bill Parcells wants you to be and what you're supposed to be and how it was in the old days. I mean, listen, no one walks to school up, uh, uphill in the, in the, in the snow both, both ways, ways anymore. You know what I mean? So um, it's just, a, it's a much, much different uh, world, but you Sage, want whether you're. Sage. Seth didn't get that. You know, he's a Florida boy. He don't know anything about walking. Up I still hill try and tell my kids I walk to school uphill, and but you know, but they call him bullshit on me. <laughs> well, there's no, there's, there's no, no hills or no snow hills here. Hills in, no, no, it was in South Florida, but uh, <laughs> no, you had to go through some stoplights, and that that struggle <laughs> stop was lights. real. And that humidity. Sage talked about how how sweaty the ball got. That's what it was like yeah. going to school. Yeah, that humidity. Sometimes it would just come off your forehead and drip onto your books that you you're reading at brutal. the bus stop. You know, it just was brutal. brutal. It really was. And uh, <laughs> I'm happy you made it through, Seth. I, I really am. Uh, hey, listen, I know I'm some a people are probably surprised now that you have that you have a podcast and a career, but you made it out. You, you made, made it. it out. He made really, it. He made it. It's it's really incredible. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, Mike McDaniel. Um, I'm really hoping he has success. He's, yeah, he's a different type of cap, but what you're going to see is that players are going to uh, see how he puts them in position to be themselves and, and be successful by his scheme. And I actually think uh, it's interesting. I, I see what Kyle Shanahan's doing in, in San Francisco. Sometimes I think Kyle almost is too creative and tries to do too many things. And, and that offense is now very different than like, you know, 2008 when I was in Houston. But when I see McVeigh, LaFleur, and Mike McDaniel, right. there's a lot of the same very high-quality pass concepts and play-action concepts that I was very successful in running, of course, with more twists and some RPOs and things like that. But uh, I, I think Mike's going to do a, a – he will do wonders uh, for, for Tua. I, I promise you. You go back and you look at these coaches, this sort of this tree – and you look at the quarterbacks that played for them and then look at the, the quarterbacks before they played for them. And you start going, man, every quarterback, you know, Jake Plummer was, was all right in Arizona. He gets to, gets to Denver and boom, he's a, you know, went to the pro bowl and they went to the AFC championship game. And, you know, you just have these, these quarterbacks that are in different systems before, and then they get into this system and they, he just, the way he teaches it, the way he coaches it, the way he designs it, the quarterbacks, if you're decent at all, you're going to probably probably be fairly successful. What I love about it is they make things pretty black and white for the quarterback. And mm. there's nothing worse, uh, in my opinion, as an offense coordinator who gives you a lot of gray area. That gray of you know, cover three, we're working over here. Cover two, we're working over here. Uh, you know, but, you know, if it's cover four and you sort of like it, you can sort of take it if you want to. If you don't, you can work. it's sort of this like, well, what do you want? Because <laughs> as I drop back in the game and I don't do, you know, the like, which, you know, you right. you can always find something wrong with what I did. This offense makes things black and white. And, and what I like about it is it allows the quarterback to know exactly what he's doing. Noah's footwork can be very, very precise in that way. And it just makes you much more confident in your decision-making. I know when the ball hits my hands, they're in this coverage, and this is where I'm going with the football. Um, one, two, and three, get the ball out. And there's not this sort of wishy-washy gray area. Because gray area sort of just, to me, causes anxiety. And when you have, you know, Peyton Manning or, or you know, one of the all-time legends back there, they can live in that gray area because they've seen it all. But for a young quarterback, you want someone to, be, you know, be very, very confident in their their footwork and their fundamentals. 
um, and know exactly what they're doing. And we know what you're doing. Uh, you just play at a much higher level. Your accuracy goes up because your footwork is tied to your arm. And when your footwork's right, your accuracy is right. And for what I have seen of Tua, he is a pretty dang accurate quarterback. He does throw a really nice football. Um, by the way, yeah. I remember when Tua came out and Trent Dilfer was like training him. He's like, this is strong. He's got Dan Marino type arm. And I'm sitting there going like, come on, Trent. I know you're a salesman, but he more has a Drew Brees type arm, in my opinion. He's got, I think Tua's got a stronger arm than Drew. But I, he seems to be, for me, a much more like mid-range accuracy. But if he throws a deeper ball on time at 50 yards, he's pretty accurate with that, too. But he's not going to throw at 65 on a freaking line. I saw some Dan Marino highlight the other day. Dan was freaking incredible. Well, he was one I mean, of one, just, <laughs> he was throwing. He wasn't even throwing a football out there. He was throwing a baseball out there. That was the way he – I don't know how – but it was just the way he would, would, would go back and just fire it. Uh, it, it, it was absolutely incredible watching watching Dan Marino throw back in the day. And I don't know if you know, anyone preaching to the choir Holmes here. has his own throwing motion. Right. And it was so right. quick. You know, I think like Pat Holmes is incredible and Josh Allen's incredible. They have longer throwing motions. Dan was just like, Dim! and you know, 38 yards on a Fast line ball. down the yeah. hash, you know, and, and – Obviously, the receiver's not even open. Doesn't even matter. Dan decided he's going to throw the ball to that guy. He found a window that's like you know about a, a foot by a foot. You know, and um, simply <laughs> so incredible. On the other end I remember like so watching. He knows for yeah, yeah, he knows yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Fun yeah. Time. If he wants, if he wants to get you the football, he will get you the football. No doubt about right? it. So, yeah, <laughs> no that, 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 that's, that's, why always, that's why Juice is always sucking up to him. He's like, that's why you damn right. You damn right. These are these are just plays that. These are plays that are designed that for the backup quarterback to have reads, but for Dan to do what the hell he wants. That was sort of like probably the, the, the deal, you know? That's exactly right. So, so Sage, I want to ask you about that. You just talked about the backup quarterback. And you had an 11-year career, I think, officially, right? You know, if you count how many years uh, – how many years the legal count when they start paying out pensions? Was, was it 11 <laughs> years? Right. Yeah. That's all that matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all yeah. that matters. It's 11 years. It's 11 years, but I what I like to say is my 12th year, I got a, I got a half-million-dollar signing bonus, which is what I made my rookie year plus my signing bonus. And so I like to say 12 Well, damn years it. You can count that year whether they don't <laughs> or not for, for a half M. For a half M. I like that. So, you know, and we talked about these games where you came in or you played your, your fair share of games. But as we have discussed here, the vast majority of your time, you, you were a backup quarterback. You know, sometimes a number two, yeah. sometimes a number three. You played behind everyone from Brett Favre to Eli Manning. And I, I know you enjoyed to compete. Hell, we saw it, you know, even off the field. I know you enjoyed to compete. But you have talked about, especially in your post-career um, life here, you've written about, you've talked about how being a backup quarterback is not the worst gig in the world. And you kind of embraced it to some degree. So unless I misinterpreted some things, but talk about that mentality. And did you ever find yourself more comfortable in that number two role than even when you were going into a game as a starter? Yeah, the number two role is about a tenth the amount of stress as a starting quarterback. I mean, and that stress starts on Monday when you go in and the coach says, hey, you're starting this week because the court, you know, the starting quarterback's hurt. Immediately, that stress and anxiety starts. All right. So whether you're watching film, it, it just mentally you're coming at it from a different angle for, for whatever reason. Of course, practice during the week. You know, when starters, when a good NFL starter is out there practicing, balls don't hit the ground. You know, the, the, the football's – you know, your your seven on seven needs to be about ninety five percent completion percentage, and the team needs to be about eighty percent com or higher completion percentage, and 
things have to be crisp. And if the starting quarterback is not crisp in practice, it just looks sloppy out there. And, you know, when you're a backup, you're pretty much getting a few reps here and there. Uh, you know, if there's 10 reps for a team period, you might get one. It's probably a handoff to give the starting quarterback a break just so you get up there and you're used to being around the center and the snap count. But, you know, most of your reps are with the scout team. And when you're with the scout team, you can throw as many interceptions as you want for the most part. The defensive coordinator likes it. Right. You know, our defense is playing great. We intercepted stage nine times today. You know, there's no, yeah. there's no neg- negative there. And, of course, you don't, you don't want that to happen. But, shoot, some defensive coordinators say, throw ball here. You know, like they'll circle the X wide receiver, which is going to be triple covered on that play. But that's what they want you to do. So, you know, there's just, yeah, there's a whole different level of sort of stress as it builds up through the week. And, of course, then you play when you're the backup. You're just, you know, you're practicing, you're knowing the game plan, knowing you're due, prepared to, to play. But, you know, when you sort of get thrown in there when, when there's an injury, uh, you just have probably less time to have that stress and anxiety leading up to the game. And and so you just sort of you just go out there and you do your best um, and, you know, and try to you know, follow the game plan. Usually coaches try to give you some easy completion starting off. But, yeah, it's way easier to be a back quarterback in the National Football League. Uh, you know, it just is. And you don't have to do all the press conferences every single day or every week, get up in front of everybody. Of course, at this point, you're making about one-tenth or one-fifteenth of what the starters are making. I mean, that used to be like, hey, the starting quarterback's making six million, the backup's making a million. And it wasn't that big of a difference, you know, in a sense. But now it's, you know, these guys making 35 to 45 million. It's just like, man, to be a starter, that is that is where to go. And even be yeah. a, like a lower starter, those guys are making 15 to to 20 and so there's so much more money to try to be a starter now it would that is nice you get one of those and you are completely set of course for life but yeah to to be to be a backup is it's probably one of the great jobs in in all of the world to be honest is (laughs) is, uh because you're you know when you back up brett Favre, Ali manning those guys never get hurt right no stress going into the game I used to, when I was in Minnesota, I used to play tennis on Saturdays after we do our walkthrough. And I'm like, I, haven't, I feel like I haven't got much of a workout here. You need to break uh, a sweat, huh? Tennis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I need to get a sweat because I know I'm not going to be sweating on Sunday. You know, I'm going to be over Hilarious. here, you know, ch- checking, out the, checking out the pictures. And basically, you're a coach in a lot of ways. You also get all the sort of like, you, you get to see behind the curtain, you know. And no offense to OJ or, or, you know, the defensive players. You guys didn't get to sit in meetings with the offensive coordinator and occasionally the head coach would come in and talk about personnel and who you like. And you sit, you have an idea and they, and there's a, there's a bit, there's a big trust factor there that you're not going to say anything to guys of like, who's going to get cut. And, you know, they wouldn't tell you exactly, but you just got more information. You got way more information as far as what the coordinator thought about everybody on the offense that's I for dang sure. And the defense, because, you, you know, cause those guys are in meetings with the defensive coaches sometimes, too. So you just get so much more information. And, and yeah, you got to sort of be a coach, right? You're listening to the plays. You're listening to conversations sometimes. Uh, you know, some teams you only hear like what the, what the coordinator is calling into the quarterback. And then some teams I've been on where you have a headset and you can literally hear everything so you hear coaches yelling at each other coaches going like oh man that guy sucks we got to get a new linebacker next that time. is you, know, you, you occasionally That's get so a little good. of that stuff too but there's a big trust there that like you know so you're you're a little upper it's a management, management position just to, just, right just yeah a little bit yeah a little, a little white collar over here you know it was it, right. it was nice but uh 
it, it's, it, it was a great, great, you know, spot to, to be. And, um, you know, as, as I like to say, occasionally I give like a motivational speech and I say, you know, when you're a backup quarterback, you're the two, you're the three, you know, the one thing when Saban gave me a story one time, like a football team is like a school bus, you know, we're all on the school bus, Nick's driving the bus. All right. Sometimes you're in the front, sometimes you're in the middle and sometimes you're in the back. All right. Just be happy you're on the school bus. <laughs> and he decides who's on the school bus and wherever he Yes, he sits. does. And you have no control of where you sit. But what I realize is that I was, you know, that single seat in the back, you know, that just right. all by itself for some reason. I don't yeah, know the one by the very exit door. Yeah. That's Can't right. You. So yeah. you, are, you are the first one off that bus in the back too, right? So you're also the first one. Uh, to to get released from the team for any reason when they need to sign somebody. So it's you're on the bus, but you're also in a very sort of a little bit of a stressful situation sometimes because it's so easy to just get rid of you. They don't have much invested in you. You don't have much of a signing bonus. So there's you know there's none of that, and so it's very easy to go and interchange out with somebody else. Uh, you know, being that being that backup or num- number three Good quarterback, stuff. and so it's a great job, and and uh, I, I enjoyed my career. Um, I felt very, very lucky. I feel like I hit luck about 10 times along the way of various things that happened to end up having that 11-year career. I think you'll find that a lot with backup quarterbacks. You know, I mean, how lucky is it for me to to get signed with Gary Kubiak and Shanahan and those guys and, and you know, be around coordinators who really knew how to make quarterbacks successful who maybe hadn't been great quarterbacks in the past. And, you know, Matt Schaub led the league in, in passing one year, right? He, you know, he wasn't a, a Hall of Fame quarterback. He wasn't a nope. six-time Pro Bowl. Arian Foster was undrafted. He ran for – he led the league in rushing at least once, maybe maybe twice. They just knew how to maximize, you know, offensive players and really maximize quarterbacks' talents. And so I truly believe you can be very successful in this offense without being Dan Marino, without being Pat Mahomes. And I think Tua uh, should be thanking the good Lord upstairs for Mike McDaniel being the head coach because he's going to give him every opportunity to be successful and, and to sort of really make life easy on him in a sense because Mike's going to come up with ways to make the job of the quarterbacks much, much easier. Yeah, man, no doubt about it, Sage. You know what I mean? I, I think that's that's critical, man. You talk about a lot about, you know, your talent's always there, but, you know, coach's job is to put guys in position to be successful. And I think that, you know, your scheme is always a big part of it. You know, your guys come out of college, do one thing, and then it has to do something different in the pros. But, you know, going to the right scheme, the right setup, I mean, we saw guys running wide open, you know, all, all weekend long after, you know, the first half, this last game. But one thing that we have heard from a lot of guys is that, you, you talk about a little bit is the, the ball that you throw. You know, you throw such a great ball and a catchable ball, whatever, you know, whatever that means. But your athleticism doesn't stop there, though, man. You know, we've, we've had you over to the house with a ball up, you know, my house a few times. And I got to tell our listeners out there, man, Sage has got game. He's got ball game, man. So well, we, you, you used, used has. Well, you can still shoot. I bet you can still shoot it, though. I bet you can still stroke it, though, can't Oh, that you? jumper was nice. Yeah. Now, now, you're, now you're just stereotyping that I'm a 6'4 white guy from Iowa and that I can shoot. I know. Yeah, I absolutely. Absolutely, I am. You know That's I mean? exactly what I'm saying. I know you would pull up deep. He already had the NBA line, and you would pull up two or three feet beyond that. Yeah, I, 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 I led my – I broke the record in my high school for most three-point attempts, just so you guys know. Not makes, though, just attempts. You got it. Uh, hey, it's not going to go in if you don't shoot it, Sage. I, I was. Now I was you sound multi- like Terry Kirby. <laughs> I, 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 I was a multi-sport uh, athlete in high school, and I actually always think that that 
man, I, I hate the specialization in youth sports nowadays and this stuff of like, hey, if you play basketball, you got to play for 12 months out of the year. I'm like, no, nah, you should play for about four months out of the year. And then the offseason, you get some pickup games here and there and, you know, maybe once a week or, you know, whatever. But you should be playing another sport. Go play football. Go out for the track. I played tennis growing up, played baseball. I think baseball, you've heard like Pat Mahomes talk about it. Kyler Murray talk about baseball is a huge – I've always said you can – I'll make you an NFL quarterback or a good college quarterback if you're a baseball player, basketball player. If you're the athlete, is maybe a good basketball player, but you've got the throwing ability from all the angles and the footwork and things to be a baseball player, just give me like six months or a year and we can do enough drills and, and teach you how the game works to be a pretty good college or even pro quarterback. So that's what I look for. I, I like the multi-sport thing. There's also like various ways to win – you know, football games are one one way. Well, tennis matches, they don't have a clock, right? So the, the game's over when it's the same with baseball. The game's over when it's over. So you always really have a chance, right? And, of course, basketball, you pe- people can make runs, and you're behind by 15 going to the fourth quarter, and you, you, you're not really out of it. You know, you hit two or three threes, next thing you know, you put pressure on the other team, and, you know, who, who likes it when a team's coming back on you? So there's various things I, that are really important to me that for, for quarterbacks to be multi-sport athletes. And obviously, two is a, a very, very good athlete. By the way, one, one thing I uh, want to add um, with this style of offense that Mike McDaniel is running, you have to have at least one. You really want to have two really, really fast guys. I know it's easier said than done. <laughs> but you, you can go out there and find guys who aren't great, great wide receivers, but they're just burners. You know, they're guys who ran track in college where they have bad hands. That's okay. What NFL coaches try to do a lot of times is to make every wide receiver do the same. Hey, we're all going to run, be able to run curl routes. We're all gonna... No, in this offense, you got to have guys who just fly because they have to oh, they scare do. The, they have to scare the crap out of the safety so much that just makes those cavities behind the linebackers even bigger. And I said that, you know, back in Houston, we, we signed Andre Davis to an extension solely based on the fact that he could fly. Right. And then you'd have Andre Johnson roll in behind him on some sort of, you know, 15-yard route, and there's nobody there. So the safeties are deep. The linebackers are, are pulled up with the play action. And there's our best player wide open. And so it's not even always to throw the ball to, just to threaten the crap out of the defense. And that's where I see teams struggle when they try to run play action. They don't have at least one guy in there who's the initial guy, whether it's a post or a high corner or just a a seam route down the middle. You have to have a guy that can fly. And this Miami Dolphins team has about three of those guys. And they're the number At one least. in the read, but a lot of times they end up clearing everybody out and bringing it in for guys who aren't as fast, aren't maybe as physically gifted to just be wide open yeah. <laughs> uh, in the defense because Tyreek is, is taking three guys with him. Man, no doubt about it, man. No doubt. I mean, I mean it's, a, it's a great offense to be in. I mean, we haven't seen guys running wide open in a long time around here. As a matter of fact, I think Tua had the least amount of separation from wide receiver to DB than anybody in the league last year, and they wonder why at times he might have struggled. Now he's going to get these opportunities, man, and I think a lot of it has to do with the speed you're talking about, also the scheme that we got from Coach McDaniel. Coaching matters in the National Football League. You know, you, you could probably go make me an OJ, the head coach of the, of, of the Heat, we probably at least win half our games, right? I mean, the players right. matter. Everybody does. NBA. And I <laughs> and I know, you know, Spo down there is a heck of a coach, right? I'm not trying to take anything away from him. But, you know, in, in that baseball, basketball, 
the players are, are really, really the most important aspect. Of it. But in football, players matter, but coaches who can draw up scheme and put those players uh, in, in position to be successful, they're not all built the same. I promise you, they're not all built the same. There's a wide variety. And I was talking to a, a very, I'm going to say prominent NFL offensive coordinator, came to the Iowa State Pro Day last year in the spring, and we're talking. And shoot, he, he had one of the best offenses in football last year. You could tell by our conversation that he wishes he had coached with Sean McVay or Kyle Shanahan or Matt LaFleur. He was because he knew there's there's some secret sauce in there. There's some there's some just some secret details that he did not know, even though his offense was one of the best in, in the NFL, because he was seeing things that they were doing. And he's seen the, the success uh, of their teams, despite the fact that they don't have the best quarterback in the league. And in this league, it seems like you have to have the best quarterback, right? you know, a top five quarterback to be successful. And that is like almost impossible to find. But if you have the right coordinator, you can be really successful with the 15th best quarterback in the league. And I don't know where Tua is, but I know Mike McDaniel is going to maximize his talent. And that is does not happen all the time. There's a lot of coordinators out there who I think almost make it hard on the quarterback and almost minimize uh, their, their ability to be successful. Well, that's exciting to hear for Dolphins nice fans, for sure. Yes, and I think sir. we're starting to see it come to fruition. But we're going to take your coaching tip, Sage, and we're going to put Juice right now. Say, Forget backup. You are our QB1 on this podcast today. We're going to put you in position to be successful. We know you like the end of game. We know you like to get thrown in there and a good two-minute drill. So we this year have introduced the fish tank two-minute drill. All right, so we're going to throw some rapid-fire stuff at you. You've been playing tennis on Saturday. You haven't had a lot of time to prepare, but we believe that you're ready for this moment. So Preach is going to pull up the two minutes on the clock. We're very sophisticated here with our clock, and <laughs> we're going to hit start. Juice, let's get Sage Rosenfels in the two-minute drill. All right, Sage, you grew up on a farm in Iowa and attended Iowa State. If you didn't play football, what would you have done for a living? I was a business major, so honestly, if I would have, I, I probably would have ended up in Des Moines working for an insurance company. That's what everyone else. Does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, hey, then things worked out for you. Not so bad. <laughs> next question. Next question. Yeah, what was more intimidating, Sage? I like it. He's saying, "Get to the line. Get to the line." Starting your first NFL game against Ed Reed or delivering your first stand-up comedy routine at Baltimore with Ed Reed. That was, you know, I, I gave him an interception. He needed one, so I gave him one. And, but the first, <laughs> yeah, I was kind. First play of the game, though. First play of the game, 77-yard touchdown pass to Chris Chambers on a stop and go uh, on a on – I can't remember, the Baxter was the corner. So that game started great, didn't end so yeah. well. But uh, yeah. it's all right. I, I made the team next year, and the whole coaching staff got fired. All right, good stuff. So, okay, everyone knows Wes Welker filled in for an injured Alindo Mari and made a field goal and an extra point in 2004. But what they don't know – is that it might have come down to Wes Welker or you. Who is actually the better kicker, Sage Rosenfels or Wes Welker? Wes, Wes was the better kicker. Actually, uh, a year or two later, I tried that. Our, our kicker got hurt. I tried to go in and kick in practice and tearing a muscle in my quad. So my oh, kicking shit. games okay. were officially done. <laughs> Wes was the right guy. Coach Wes, Wes was, we Wes was definitely the guy. Hey, final questions. You've thrown touchdown past the former Miami Dolphins, including Chris Chambers, Ronnie Brown, Marty Booker, and Donald Lee. Who is one Dolphin wideout you wish you had could have thrown a touchdown pass to? 
Mm, like that, that, that did I have to play with him or no, did I, I mean no. any any any, any Miami Dolphin any, any Dolphin. Miami Dolphin. Mm-hmm. Well, in Florida, they have the world's best orange juice, and I've never had any OJ during my time with the there it there is, is, OJ. Here we go. Drill. That's what I'm talking about. No pressure <laughs> there. There was zero pressure there. It says no pressure. <laughs> I tell no you what, pressure uh, OJ, at all. OJ made his quarterbacks look good. He made Jay look good, and if anyone can make Jay look good, he would have made me look good. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's how you wrap up a podcast. Sage, man, you've been so gracious with your time. It was great to catch up with you. I hope we get to do it again as the year progresses. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey, Sage, thanks for diving in, man. All right, fellas, I appreciate having me on. You're now diving into the fish tank. Sitting down with Seth Living, OJ, Juice, man, this is strictly for them true fans, golf fans, number one, One. of course y'all, this ain't no ordinary sports talk, dive up in that fish tank, go get your aqua orange, yeah, it's time to dive up in that fish tank, it's only legendary talking when you dive up in that fish tank, rocking with OJ and Seth when you dive up in that fish tank. Leave it all on the field, we gon' try hard Old school, a new school, mix it in Feeling like we up close when we listening Dolphins tales, in Miami is the deep end We vibing with our favorite players, no secret We get with Seth and McDuffie Bringing up stories we never heard to the public Bet we love it, Dolphins fans never budget We loyal to the team, whether happy or we upset We be like, what's next? Don't switch the subject You know it's all about them fans And if you ready for that water, time to dive in Don't switch the subject you know it's all about them fans And if you down with Dolphins Nation, time to dive in Don't switch the subject, you know it's all about them fans You looking at that fish tank, it's time to dive, dive in fish tank. Go get your aqua orange, yeah, it's time to dive up in that fish tank It's only legendary talking when you dive up in that fish tank Rockin' with OJ and Seth, time to dive up in that fish tank Don't ever add a tool, you might have never been a kid.